Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I am thrilled to be here today. If this is your first time here, first off, where have you been? But welcome. This podcast, if you are unclear what we're doing, features the voices and the big ideas from the fellows in our Agents of Change in Environmental Justice program. That program seeks to empower emerging leaders from historically excluded backgrounds in science and academia to reimagine solutions for a more just and healthy planet. This is a good news podcast. We are here to brighten your day and give you the solutions for tomorrow. I also speak with other leaders in the fields of environmental justice and health, and I would encourage any of you new listeners to go back to episode one, where I speak with founder, director, Dr. Amizoda, and while you're there, listen to the rest too, eh? You can find all of these on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher. All right, today I am talking to Mizbath Dauda, a PhD candidate at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health and current Agents of Change fellow. Mizbeth talks about her multicultural upbringing, the dangers of indoor air pollution, and how her research on clean energy involves community input, knowledge, and advocacy at every step. Enjoy. All right, I would like to welcome Mizbeth Dauda to the podcast. Mizbeth, how are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing wonderful. And where are you today? Where are you coming at us from? Uh, from my favorite city in the world, New York City. <laughs> New York City. That is uh, that is awesome. Glad to hear it. Um, so I had the pleasure of uh, editing and reading your essay, so I know a little bit about you. And I'd like to start going way back. In your essay, you talk about growing up with multicultural parents and moving around a bit and kind of forcing you to consistently re-examine your identity. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this and especially what this looked like um, and felt like moving here to the U.S. Sure. Um, so I was born in Senegal. My father is from Benin and my mom is French, Togolese and Malian. Um, and so initially, you know, my first memories were definitely in Benin after we, <clears throat> after we moved from Senegal. Um, and there, I think, you know, some of the things that stood out are the fact that I didn't speak my father's language, um, Yoruba, and I didn't speak um, the language that's mo- most often spoken in, in Cotonou, which is Fon. Um, so I definitely stood out among my cousins, um, my brothers and I, my sister, my brothers and I did. Um, and then we moved to Senegal. And similarly, I, you know, didn't speak Wolof very well, or if I tried, I definitely had an accent. Um, so there again, another experience of, of standing out. And then in France, um, it wasn't so much a language or the accent, but more so the color of my skin, my skin really, that made me stick out like a sore term. Um, and I guess here, I just want to emphasize that France, just like the U.S., really has a long way to go in addressing systemic racism as well. Um, and so these different experiences really made me think of my identity as a moving target, something that was fluid um, and could change depending on where I was. And it really came into focus when I moved to the U.S., because then um, when people ask, where are you from? I had to do an effort to understand what it is really that they were trying to ask me whether it was where I was born, where my parents were from, and 
um, I think in French, in the French language, language, that isn't so much of a problem because the way the question is asked, you know exactly um, which of those questions um, are being asked. And that was the first time that I really had to think about um, how to present myself, I guess. Um, I think on college campuses, no one wants to hear about, you know, what I just shared, like <laughs> that takes three, four minutes to explain. Um, most of the time people just want to know, why do you have an accent or, you know, um, things like that. So, yeah, I would say I've grown to embrace that my identity, my identity is not something that's fixed. Um, it's something that's always evolving and I see it as enriching, but sometimes it is just a little cumbersome, I would say. <laughs> When I was reading your essay, the, the, what struck me, and it really made me think about language and how whether we're growing up or, or even now, people view language. If someone doesn't have a firm grasp of a language or something, mm-hmm. it's it's misconstrued as um, uh, often of, of, of unintelligence or, or not understanding. And it's really a sign of, if you know multiple languages or, or grasping a new language, it's a sign of high intelligence. I mean, it's <laughs> the exact opposite, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But growing up, you know, trying to tell other kids that uh, or, or teach that is something that I think is hard to grasp until we're older. Um, yeah, I think I think often what does stand out is how close you are to speaking your language perfectly without the background of, oh, well, maybe she's not speaking that language perfectly, but she's speaking two or three others. So, yeah. Right. Right. And in America, we speak one, most of us, and then we go to Europe. <laughs> and instead of learning a language when we travel or wherever, we just point at the menu and scream or whatever. <laughs> um, we have a we have a very conceited um Many of us have a very conceited outlook on language. But so um, skipping ahead a little bit, um, I, I'm kind of curious when you got into your undergraduate and master's work, what what's what why did you get into environmental health? What shaped you and what made you want to have that as the field that you kind of built your life around? Yeah. Um, so to not be original and echo something that has been said on this podcast um, very often is that I wanted to be a doctor um, initially. I wanted to be a pediatrician, Um, always loved kids and always wanted to really dedicate my life to making kids' lives better. Um, And so I came to the U.S. and went to undergrad thinking that I would apply to medical school. Um, But at the same time, my, my undergraduate degrees were in biochemistry and Hispanic studies, because I've always wanted, again, I always knew that I could be working internationally. I've always loved languages. And and so um, I pursued that until the end of, of um, undergrad. And halfway through undergrad, I actually went to Ivory Coast to do an internship in a hospital and work in the pediatric unit. And that probably has been the most defining experience because it really taught me that I did not have the strength um, to do this, I would get very, very emotional and and just very affected by the fact that I couldn't help to the extent that I I wish I could. And it only lasted a couple of weeks, but it definitely made me rethink uh, my ability to be in the medical field. Um, And so when I graduated undergrad, I knew I still had some work to do to figure out how to get to that goal of still being involved in children's health, um, but not being a physician. And it, I had to kind of just take some time and, and think back to what were my drivers. Um, I think growing up 
in West Africa, something that I was acutely aware of is just all of the environmental triggers that we are exposed to, whether it's air pollution for, you know, sitting in traffic and inhaling the fumes from the car in front of you, or, you know, um, even just at home, I, I remember my mom was really, really um, cautious about us really totally washing our hands when we came back from wherever we were. Um, I know she had a rule that veggies and, and fruit would not make it to the fridge until they were totally washed. And so, I don't know, it just always felt like we had to be chill, shielded from some kind of, of triggers in the environment around us. And um, so that wasn't, you know, everybody was doing it. So that wasn't really what stood out. But what stood out to me was if we are able to do this, it's because our parents can afford to protect us like this. But what about kids whose parents can't? Um, and so I had all these questions, but didn't know about environmental health until a friend actually, you know, heard me um, discussing this and told me, I think environmental is what environmental health is what you're, you're thinking about. Um, and they were doing their MPH at the time, so they had exposure to the different um, fields that go under public health. Um, and then, yeah, that was kind of like a mind-blowing realization that there is actually a field that, that is dedicated to this. So that's how I got into it. So it, was, it wasn't until, you know, um, maybe two years after undergrad that I really found my path. Um, and after that, I got my MPH um, in environmental health. I would push back on one thing you said, and that's that you didn't have the strength um, when you went to the Ivory Coast. I don't think that's a strength thing. I, I mean, I think having an emotional response to stuff like that is some that that's just who you are. I wouldn't consider that a lack of a lack of strength. And and obviously, you've channeled your um, uh, your your energies into other really cool areas to promote health. So you mentioned that experience in shaping you, but I, I'm wondering if if that or if there's a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point. Yeah, um, so I have a twin sister, and I think growing up, um, we were in schools, especially we were always compared. So like you know, there was always a comparison um, thing happening. Um, if not that, our names were interchanged. <laughs> um, and, you know, my parents didn't help with that because my name is Miss Beth and her is Miss Too. So um, I don't know. Um, it was easy to make that that mistake. But I think something it taught me growing up and always having someone that I would be compared to um, is that there is always room for growth, there's always room for improvement, and there's always going to be someone who does some things better than you do, which, you know, like she's um, amazingly capable of doing things that I can't. Um, and so it just made me a really, someone who really embraces change, I would say. Um, and I see that reflected in my career, how willing I am to um, take on different challenges um, someone who always wants to reflect and is always really questioning, is there room to, to do better? So I want to talk about your work now uh, when, as you're pursuing your PhD, but I have a quick question. And what is it about New York that you love so much? <laughs> New York City. Um, so I guess after graduating undergrad, I spent a lot of time in Boston um, and then my sister was doing um, a year abroad in New York. And so I was going back and forth between Boston and New York and just was having so much more fun <laughs> in New York than in Boston. Um, but overall, I think Boston is a great place for, for 
you know, people who are interested in academia mostly, I think it's a great place for researchers and scientists because it's just this really, you know, like this huge brain that is always um, on. I used to joke that, you know, you walk into a coffee shop in Boston and you hear about, you know, CRISPR and all these things. These are the casual conversations that people are having. Um, and so I think if that's your interest, it's amazing to be in Boston, but it's also, so it, it's a bit restricting, I think, um, and it just doesn't give you as much exposure to, to other um, paths in life. Um, it's also a very segregated city, um, and that, I think, kind of took a, a toll on me later on. Um, just wanting to find my people <laughs> um, seemed to be difficult there, yeah. Yeah, I asked that, and I and I asked that loving New York. I, I mean, I I lived in Chicago for a time. Um, never never lived for any stretch of time in New York, but there is just such an energy there. I mean, it's a cliche, but um, I live in a very rural area, and a lot of people that live in cities go out to the country for vacation, and I usually do the opposite. I go into a place like Manhattan, and I just feel recharged um, with yeah. the food and the, the diversity. It's um, it's a magical place. It sure. is. It really is. So, so now you're you're in New York pursuing your PhD in environmental health sciences, um, and you specifically examine energy transitions. And one of the projects you're working on, combating household air pollution with clean energy, is looking to promote these clean cooking technologies in Ghana. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through some of this research, including the traditional cooking technology used and why they're harmful. Sure. Um, so yes, energy transitions is what I focus on um, right now. I think part of the reason why I'm passionate about energy is because we all use it. We all need it. Um, but some of us have choices as to where the energy we use comes from and others don't. And that has clear implications for for the environment, but also for our health and the health of the the people we love, the people we live with. Um, so that's really the big driver behind why I chose to focus on, on energy transitions. Um, and in Ghana, as in other part, part of um, Sub-Saharan Africa and in low and middle income countries, um, the way people meet their cooking and energy needs usually is through um, the use of solid fuels. So in Ghana, that often is charcoal or wood. Um, and basically, the burning of these fossil fuels, uh, of the solid fuels for cooking, um, leads to carbon emissions that are bad for the environment, but also really high levels uh, of air pollution in homes. Um, and traditionally, traditionally in these settings, um, women are more likely to be doing the cooking or to be doing the collection of fuels. So they are the ones who end up being more exposed, just because they spend more time um, around around cook stoves and around um, these this polluting fuels, and so our children um, as well. And so this new po this project that is actually, it came about as an initiative from the president of Columbia University called Columbia World Project, which basically um, aims to ensure that all the knowledge we generate here at Columbia uh, makes it to the places where it's most needed, that it's implemented and that it's used for, to create change. And so as part of this, this um, initiative, my advisor, um, along with other colleagues, um, put it a, a grant to do this work. And basically um, 
what I want to highlight is that there has been a lot of work already and a lot of um, investment in this in these transitions away from solid fuels in India, in other parts of the world, in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And the way we try to build on those, but also um, try to take a different approach, um, can really be broken down in about three three features. The first one is that um, in the past, those transitions were done at the household level. So we would go find a household and explain why it would be beneficial to transition, um, afford, um, provide them with subsidized stoves and see if they would you know, take them and use them. Um, but in this case, what we are doing is we are focusing on entire communities because um, what some of the previous result, results um, have shown is that even though a household might transition to a cleaner fuel, um, if their neighbors are still using a polluting fuel, then um, you still have air pollution in, in a close, close environment. Um, so that's one feature. And then the other one is also that we've come to appreciate something that's called stacking. Basically what happens is that a household might, might um, accept a new, a cleaner um, stove, but then still end up using uh, polluting fuels for certain activities. And so even though they've you know, taken up this new, new stove or new fuel, um, there's still some exposure to air pollution from the, 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 the use of the old stove. Um, and to address that, what we are thinking of offering households in Ghana is basically a set of options trying to move away from this idea that there is a silver bullet technology and understand that depending on different activities, whether it's cooking, boiling water, or you know, um, other activities that require energy, households might need just different um, technologies. And then the last one um, is thinking about behavior change approaches that take into account how do people make decisions within households regarding their expenses um, related to energy? What are the choices that they, they have and, and how do they make those decisions? And that's a part that I'm really interested in, trying to understand intra-household dynamics. Um, often what we have come to understand is that often women might prefer cleaner fuel but don't have the bargaining power. They are not the ones who usually um, make decisions about expenses. And so there, there is a clash there as to which member of the household prioritizes what. Um, and that's the part that I'm really, really interested in, because I think it could tell us a lot about how do we move the needle um, in this in this work. This is why your research fascinates me, because I my brain is this very kind of linear where it's like, OK, there, there needs to be new energy. Let's go build it. And then let's do the next one. Let's just do it. And, and that's how my brain works, my, my little pea brain. But um, there's so much that goes into this. And what, so when you buck up against something like this social, this, this gender dynamics in household, let's just take that as an example. So now you maybe understand that, that maybe women don't have the bargaining power, um, but you still want to get a cleaner fuel in front of people. What, what do you do with that information? What's the next step? You, it's, to try to change a social norm um, like that. Yeah. Um, and, and before I answer, I just want to go back to what you just said. I, I do think that technology are important. You know, I think we have, I do appreciate all the work that has gone into making cleaner energy more accessible and especially more affordable. Um, I don't want to minimize that there are constraints that aren't just, um, you know, social dynamics, but um, I think, 
the the choices that are made between marginally different options is where I'm trying to to um, focus a bit more on on relationships within households as opposed to you know like a, a polluting fuel versus you know a, cl- a clean fuel that that is a more a bit more binary. Um, so yeah, I mean that is that is a challenge. I think understanding that women uh, might not have as much of a bargaining power. Um, Definitely helps, but again, this is this has there has been really limited work in that space. So for me, one first step is trying to understand whether that's the case where we are working right now. So in Ghana, um, the example I was mentioning, I think came out from a study in India. But so trying to understand whether that is the case and that is the the driver behind how decisions are made is is the first step. And then the second is really trying to understand is that the only barrier. Um, if women had the means, would they really um, try to, to move to a, to a different stove? And which of the activities they are doing would they actually do with a different one? Um, so I think engaging with these women in a way that I don't impose on them my vision of what the only limitation is, but, as a, but instead really listen to what they would be doing differently um, had the context been different, is is where I'm I'm hoping to um, generate some knowledge. So, does this type of research involve spending lots of time down there and, and spending time with uh, women and households and families to just sit and understand? Yeah. Um, so, had it not been for COVID, I think one of the things I really wanted to do last summer was to um, collaborate with someone who is an ethnographer, so who does ethnography studies, and um, just spends a lot of time studying people in the environment, um, observing people, just watching their day-by-day activities um, without any hypothesis-driven um, kind of work or intention behind, behind that time spent. And I think, of course, it, this is difficult to ask, you know, um, any energy transition organization or initiative to to commit to, but as a PhD student, I think that that's what makes this time special, right? I feel like I'm taking four or five years um, out of maybe other activities I could be doing. But the reason why I do it is because I want to dedicate time to understanding something that really matters to me. And the only way I can fully understand it and feel like I've made the most use of my time is really delving deep into this topic. Um, spending three months with, with a community doesn't really feel like too much of an ask when you know I have all this time to, to, to figure it out. So yes, I mean, I think there are tensions um, in terms of trying to promote a bit more ethnographic um, way of doing things in this, in this sphere. Of course, there's a pressure of time and the fact that we want to move fairly quickly on this. But if there is even the slightest inclination that this could actually um, help us move toward adoption as opposed to just take up, um, then it would be huge. It would be huge. I'm always reminded of how journalism, at least in my own mind, is like a, a smaller version of science when you're talking about being there and maybe just kind of being embedded and kind of soaking in what you're seeing. Because I always tell young reporters when they're in the field meeting with families or communities, sometimes just put your notebook away, put your camera away, because it, mm-hmm. number one, it, it makes people a little shyer and they feel maybe being exploited to yeah. some extent. Yeah. But it also 
there's something about just letting your brain engage with people um, mm-hmm. and observe that I think is is really important, whether you're telling their story or trying to understand their story. Yeah. So, so the, there's this other main component of your research that I at least wanted to touch on a little bit is examining the impact of coal plant pollution on racial disparities and birth outcomes. So what, what have you worked on there and what have you found? Yeah, um, I think I think about this work similarly than I do with the work in Ghana. I think the question behind all of this for me is if we manage to figure out how we can move towards cleaner energy and renewable energy, who benefits? So, so who's going to benefit from it and at what cost? So in Ghana, it might be that some people in our household benefit more than others. And then he, here in the U.S., it's more so that some groups might benefit more than others, depending on whether they've been um, exposed to, to power plant emissions, for example, to a greater degree than others. So I think in a way, you know, different scale, different settings, different contexts. But for me, the, the, the question behind it um, is very similar, if not the same. Um, so this work basically um, is also, has been, I guess, motivating for me because it focuses on a, a policy that was already implemented. Um, and that's the what triggered all power plants in the US, especially coal power plants, to, to retire. So coal has been used historically to generate most of their energy in the US. And then over the the past decades, we've really seen a decrease in the number of coal-fired power plants that um, that were basically working. And so, the question that I was asking is, or that triggered this work, was really when that happened, when we, we when those power plants shut down and we saw a reduction in air pollution levels, who benefited? other groups that benefited more than others. And um, the question that I asked specifically was looking at preterm births. In the US, we know that um, the rate of preterm birth is much higher among Black women than it is among white women. So the hypothesis that I had was that, well, if we take away this coal pollution or at least reduce it significantly, then um, maybe that disparity in preterm birth between those two groups is going to decrease. and then so I looked at um, data from um, 2000 to 2010 to 2020, um, about 10 years worth of data. And um, what we found was actually, no, it looked like the rate of preterm birth decreased more among, um, sorry, it looked like the association between coal pollution was stronger among white women so that they might have benefited more from this transition. And I think there are a few ways that you can think about explaining um, these results. The first one is that we were restricted to counties that were mostly um, urban counties. Um, And so in urban areas, I think it's fair to assume that uh, black women might live in city centers where you don't see as much you know, power plants and then white women might be living in the suburbs. So that might be one way. Um, the other way is really thinking about what goes into increasing the risk of preterm birth. It's not just air pollution. Um, and though I thought that air pollution was a strong contributor to that risk, I think it's also important to recognize that some of the reasons why Black women have higher um, preterm birth rates is is healthcare or is exposure to other triggers that might have a higher contribution. Um, but all in all, reflecting on, on on this work and how you know I went in with a very strong hypothesis and was basically proven wrong, 
um, I think it really made me think about the fact that we need to measure equity outcomes, that we can't just assume a policy or a grant is going to deliver both on environmental and equity outcomes and then leave it at that. Um, and so that's a new, um, you know, a new area of research that I'm hoping to get into. Um, and, and I'm hoping to really push for this monitoring and evaluation of equity outcomes so that we're not just um, overstating the, the benefits that some programs um, and policies can have in terms of equity. So that leads me very nicely into my next question, and maybe it's the answer to it. And that's as you work towards your PhD, where do you see opportunities for the fields you're going into to do and be better for the communities that they research and serve? Yeah. Um, so building on, on, on this idea of, of measuring equity, I think that's, um, that's a strong one. It's really trying to be transparent about what equity really is um, and making sure that we don't overstate what a policy can accomplish, uh, because when we do, then we divert attention and resources from a real issue. Um, so that that's one. But I guess zooming out is really making sure that when we talk about just transitions, when we talk about fair transition transitions, we really put communities at the center and we really understand what does fair even mean to them. Um, what might be fair for a community in New York City might not be fair for a community in, an, in a rural area in terms of how they transition. What do they consider just and what are their not just needs, but also preferences, right? Um, I think the way I think about energy or the way I've seen it display, um, there is almost always um, a desire to show love or care for the people around us um, as we use energy, whether it is making sure that, you know, the home is warm, making sure that, um, you know, our loved ones are fed, all these activities um, drive the way we think, the way we use energy. Um, and I think that shouldn't be forgotten from, um, shouldn't, shouldn't be at center of the frameworks we use um, when we, we motivate communities to, to transition. I love that answer because there's, and your what you wrote for the Agents of Change essay was really a call for acknowledging nuance and detail. <laughs> And I know from my own personal reporting, I've reported on environmental justice for more than a decade. And when I'm in Detroit and it's lead poisoning, or I'm in the Crow Reservation in Montana and it's water contamination, it's environmental injustice on both of those. And they look wildly different mm -hmm. <laughs> in an inner city and at a 2 million acre reservation. I mean, they are, it is worlds apart, but yeah. it's under the same umbrella of um, racial injustice. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that nuance uh, on the research side and on the journalism side are so important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to talk about that, the, kind of the act of writing this essay and having your ideas kind of thrust into the public sphere. I don't know your experience to this point with kind of writing for a lay audience and having it be published in a place like EHN, but what was that experience like? What did you learn and any tips for people um, who want to engage in more science communication for the broader public? Sure. Um, yeah, so it was definitely my first time having, you know, um, an essay on a, a platform that is such well-read, um, so well-read. Um, and I was nervous, I think. 
you can tell that I'm nervous right now, so you can imagine <laughs> when that was coming out. Um, I and I I'm not sure where where the anxiety or the the worry was coming from, but I've always made sure my writing was <laughs> only read by a few people. I, I never really shared that, and so um, it was a new experience. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think it was really interesting to see. Um, how it resonated with people to varying degrees. Um, something that a lot of people have talked about is James. <laughs> so in the essay, I talk about James, which is uh, who is my favorite plant in my apartment. Um, and I w- in the essay, I, I refer to my concern about leaving him in an apartment that, that would be too cold when I went on vacation. Um, and I think people realize that you know, these decisions happen all the time um, um, through that example. And so I I, I felt like I had um, hit the mark there. Um, And then in general, I think, you know, I've I've received all sorts of feedback. Um, One that has led to a potential opportunity is this um, colleague who's working, well, now colleague, but she's working in uh, Maryland in the Department of Energy and had been thinking about how do we encourage more qualitative work, more listening of communities um, in the energy transi- transition um, space. And so she was really happy to read my essay and then she reached out and we started thinking about ways that um, we can encourage encourage this kind of work but also address the main concern that it, that really is usually uh, resources and and budget limitations. Um, so I, it was just great to be able to brainstorm with someone who is doing very similar work. She she's in Maryland, so she um, actually knows the undergrad where I went to, and so it was you know it was funny to to see that we had different areas where we connected. Um, yeah, and then in terms of tips. Uh, I don't know that I'm, you know, it's, it was my first time doing this. I don't know that I have the best tips, but I think something that I think about a lot when I do, um, when I take part in, in work that might be a little stressful for me, um, I guess it's just, Stressful because at some point the ball is no longer in your court, you know, um, at some point the, the essay is out and then people are going to interpret it the way they want and, and things like that. So I guess that's that's part of the reason why it was stressful. But something I think about when I do anything that's quote unquote stressful um, is that whenever you do something, I think you have to give the best scenario um, a chance to happen. So you have to, to really put your best effort out there um, and and really hope and believe that it's going to be well received and I think that's part also um, of science communication or communication in general um, it's yeah to not worry too much about negative outcomes or anything like that because they are they are rare as I've learned <laughs> yeah but the anxiety is real and I and I totally understand I mean what where we're at now it, the way we publish online is as soon as I hit publish it is your ideas or whomever's is writing is thrust into this marketplace where people can just comment without reading it, can comment with reading it. And on one hand, uh, you can have these beautiful outcomes where you're connecting with people like you did, uh, or or people are just, it's resonating with them on some level, Mm -hmm. or you can have 
negative interactions, which I've had for a decade. Um, uh, So the anxiety is totally real, but I'm glad that um, that you did have a positive experience because it was a really powerful piece. And I I learned a lot um, in working with you on editing it. And um, so do you see this science communication? And uh, I don't know how much you use social media to engage with this piece or otherwise, but do you see that kind of fitting into your broader work moving forward? Yes, definitely. Um, so I didn't have a Twitter account before starting this the fellowship. I think that's also something that has been said on the on the podcast. Um, and it's been great to find a community of scientists who think alike, who literally use this platform to brainstorm, which I think is amazing. Um, share ideas, share opportunities, um, especially right now that we all feel a bit disconnected from from each other and from colleagues. I think it's an amazing. Um, place to 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 communicate um and then you know some things that i've enjoyed have always been these like twitter threads and i'm hoping to do more of those when i publish papers that really break down what the the main findings of the papers are the limitations even um and then the path forward and so you know it doesn't it doesn't replace reading the entire paper. I think everybody should, but I think it's a really great way to, um, well, first as an exercise for each scientist, learn how to communicate in a way that um, the broader audience can understand, but also make sure that, you know, like we are we all under time constraints. And so um, that everybody who, who can dedicate a few minutes to read that thread at least understands um, what has been ac- accomplished there. So that's definitely something that I'm hoping to do more of. Um, yeah. That's great to hear. And if you think about it, if you publish, publish a newspaper, a new paper, and it goes into a journal and you don't do any kind of outreach and you, and you let it sit there, um, who knows who who sees that? Hopefully, people in your field and stuff. But if you spend the half hour to put this Twitter thread together and it mm-hmm. catches fire like things do online, yeah. Yeah. all of a sudden you've expanded your reach maybe by the thousands. I mean, it's a really it can be a really powerful tool. Um, For sure. So I'm glad to hear that. So, so Ms. Beth, we have come to my final question, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know what it is, and you're probably prepared. But what is the last book you read for fun? Um, yes, I am prepared. <laughs> it is The Vanishing Half by Britt Burnett. Um, and basically, this book focuses on twins, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, but these two characters, for me, have been really unforgettable. Um, it's basically uh, twins that um, separate at some point in, in, their, in their lives. One of them manages... They're they're black, but one of them manages to pass as a white woman, and that changes the trajectory of her life and then of people who come after her. And so it's a very poetic, but at times also very sad, commentary on race, gender, um, and class. Um, And it's done in a very intricate and and beautiful way. Um, My sister and I read it at the same time, so I think that also added to to what we took away from it. but yeah, I think passing is just something that has not really been um, written about very much. And so for me, it was a, a, a really enjoyable, I mean, enjoyable in some ways, but interesting read. Yeah. Thinking about two twins, reading a book about twins <laughs> at the same time just made my head do a complete spin around. <laughs> and I was reading in English. She was reading in French. So I bet to it too. <laughs> 
Perfect. And we've come full circle. That yeah. is that is perfect. Ms. Beth, I hope you are able to go out and enjoy a beautiful spring day in New York City. And thank you so much for taking time with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I had fun. All right. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. I really like talking to Ms. Beth. She's so fun to talk to. And you can find her essay at ehn.org under our special projects tab that we were talking about there. And while you're there, click the big orange donate button if you'd like to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. And leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing and what we can do to improve. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with any suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Karthik Amarnath, a policy specialist for Push Buffalo and an MD and MPH candidate at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University. Have a great week, folks.